are listening to Tech Reads, interviews with emerging technology thought leaders. Our sponsor is SoftTech, the premier technology trade association that has been serving Northern Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo County since 1997. Our mission is to create soft tech moments where people connect, explore ideas, and create new business opportunities. Learn more at softec.org. Hello, this is Brian Schwartz from Soft Tech, and I'm excited to get into episode three of Tech Reads, the podcast that you all are here to listen to. So my special guest today is Brian DeMint. Brian has been an entrepreneur since the age of 22. He also served as the chief marketing officer for Athenium Blockchain for three years. He left in 2021 because he saw the need, the masses need to be educated about blockchain and Bitcoin. Everyone from average Joes to um, corporate executives, this just needed to be out there. So he wrote the book, Bitcoin Evangelism, which I have a copy of. He was very generous to send that to me. Uh, Brian's journey in Bitcoin started back in 2013. So basically, this book is a summation of nine years of study and industry experience, and he's distilled it down to the simplest form so that anybody can understand it. So I'm very excited to welcome Brian, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule, Brian. Yeah, well, thank you, Brian. Thank you, guys. Um, I'm really excited. Obviously, I, I love talking about this stuff, whether we're talking about my book or not, just uh over a beer or a cup of coffee, this is this is fun conversation, and you timed that perfectly. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you give us just a little bit of background that maybe just really brief, uh, where sort of you're driven. I guess your why. I like that. You know, you're very passionately out evangelizing something that you are obviously were really struck by. So maybe a little bit how that came to be. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, just a brief background on me without getting down a political rabbit hole. I'm a pretty conservative guy. I have very libertarian leanings, which a a lot of people in Bitcoin do. Um, But one of the things that I think people see when they're, when they've been reading through my book is I I use a lot of shared language with my progressive friends, very um, left-leaning people in terms of um, things in our system, in our, in our financial system, in the way our money systems work, that um, there are systems that are built that advantage certain people and disadvantage other people. And in my study of Bitcoin, when I, when I first learned about Bitcoin, I came to it very skeptically. My first year of Bitcoin was to study it, to prove it as, as, as a fraud to my friends. I wanted to prove that it was a Ponzi scheme. And through that study, it prompted me to dig deeper into it. And also it, it kind of inevitably, inevitably gets you to study um, the federal reserve and central banking systems and, and how our money systems work. And so when you do that, you learn that, um, unfortunately, the system, uh, it has kind of a, it perpetuates wealth gaps, it perpetuates disparities. And in a 2022 culture, where we see left and right so far, uh, have, have such a far divide between the two of them. I think this is a message of Bitcoin and blockchain is a message that can actually unify. And so even though it Bitcoin got its roots in the libertarian kind of conservative, conservative circles, I think it has a message that says, hey, 
you like that word equity? Well, let's let's talk about equality. Let's talk about what equity means in terms of financial systems, because that's something where somebody at a black a Black Lives Matter protest and I would would start using shared language. Um, when on many other issues, we might be miles apart. Um, but on certain issues that are very core, I think if you fix the money, you can fix a lot of other things. And so, to me, that's an important message to get out there. Awesome. So there's a much greater call, and I remember that early on when you find a purpose greater than yourself, it's, it's really significant and drives you much further. It drives other people to, to support you. Um, so I'm, I'm all about finding that purpose greater than yourself, which was significant for you to leave the corporate world voluntarily back, you know, a few years ago, well, 2021, which I'm sure was a lucrative post. So you've taken this bold leap, uh, at least for now, taking a break from regular job and what do you hope to get i guess what do you hope to achieve in the next you know with this effort yeah well it's i'm I'm already starting to to see uh the achievements come along with this i mean the the doors that it's opened in in order to be able to talk to people like you to go on this book tour and, and podcast tour where most of the conversation isn't just pitching my book. I mean, that's kind of like this tangential thing that happens at the end. I get to do exactly what the premise of the book is, is, is evangelize and, and talk about this new way of doing things. And that's, you know, I, I, I'm a Christian. And so that's where that word evangelism came, you know, top of mind. It was, you know, as Christians, we're taught to share the good news and, you know, here's, here's how you can have a relationship with God. And so that was this word that, is constantly resonated with me. But when it came to money, I said, you know what, this is also a new way of doing things. And that's what evangelism means. It means there there was an old way of doing something. There's good news because there's a new way to do things better. And so I think when it comes to Bitcoin, just having the doors opened to share this message is is important because I've already seen people uh, changing their lives. And, And this isn't it. It's so easy for it to come off like a get rich quick scheme. Um, and so that's the, 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 the delicate balance that I want to walk, because I do want to talk about how, you know, we talk about investing principles and things like that later on in the book, but I really want people to understand this as a technology. Um, that's the first thing that I want to get through to people is yes, because you can go out and trade it and buy it, sell it, all that kind of stuff. People think, oh, I heard about so-and-so that got rich from buying Bitcoin or NFTs or something like that. Um, great, good for them. But there's a lot of people that have lost a ton of money as well because they didn't first understand it as a fundamental technology. The way I equate it is if you could go back to 1990 and if those, those people that like you that understood the internet, that understood computer science at that time benefited the most greatly through the nineties, through the early two thousands, through the digital wave, um, because they had a head start. Even the guy that had a small pizza chain, he benefited from understanding the internet early because they would have been one of the first people to put a website out. It didn't mean that they had to go into a tech company. They were, they were finding ways, people that just took the time to get a little bit of education on the internet, found ways to apply the internet, this emerging technology to their business. I've already seen that happen. I've, I, I have a, a podcast again later on tonight. Uh, it's going to be my second podcast. It's a hip hop podcast on the East Coast. All they talk about is, is, is hip hop and music on that show, except for when I've come on one time before and then again tonight, they're going to talk about Bitcoin finances. The two hosts from that show text me probably every other day with questions from the book. And they, they say things like, I've never thought about generational wealth. I've always thought about 
making money to the end of the month, buying my stuff and being on with it. Now they're talking about passing money down, passing wealth down to their kids because they understand the financial systems better. And, and they see Bitcoin as a way to opt out of kind of the old way of doing things. And so to answer your question, I'm seeing the fruits of that labor right now. So yeah, what, the way I would measure this as successful is if I see the masses a kind of awakening to this new movement. Well, and financial literacy is I, one of the things in our country that I think is grossly undertaught. I wasn't even taught it. I wish that my my parents would have been a little bit more adamant about teaching us the ins and outs. They certainly taught me what I need to know about my health and following the things, but financial literacy. So this would be Bitcoin literacy, but you are giving people financial literacy at the same time, obviously, um, which is something that, again, isn't being taught. Mm-hmm. Certainly. It's just a different mechanism to do it. And I think you raised some really good points that people, you know, fear and cancel what they don't understand. I think that um, once you understand something and you experience it firsthand, you start to appreciate it differently and see it differently, but you have to sort of make that leap of faith. And I suspect that most of the people who are the crypto downers have never bought a single Bitcoin or even ventured into actually doing something. So it's easy to be critical on, on the couch, uh, but you probably want people to take that leap of faith. Yeah, I mean, I, the way my mom was was very resistant uh, to adopting any kind of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. And, uh, and I said, well, mom, how hard was it for you to adopt you know, using the internet? She goes, oh, no, it wasn't that hard. And I said, okay, well, what, what, what's the difference? It's technology. And you were probably kind of nervous about it at first. And I said, when you went and sent your first email, you didn't ask how SMTP servers work. What you did is you typed out an email and you just you hit send and it, and it worked. And, and so for some reason, because Bitcoin is tied to money and there's this kind of financial aspect of it, rightfully so, people are kind of nervous about it. So they think, okay, I got, I got to really be on my, my guard. The best thing you could do is go out and buy $3 of Bitcoin, send it to a friend, and then just sit back and like say, wow, I just transferred value across the planet on a Sunday night when the banking hours weren't operational. There's mm-hmm. no intermediary. Um, there, I mean, it's like it, that's that realization sets in when you use the technology for the first time. You said, wow, I, I kind of, it starts to click. I have autonomy over my money. Um, it's a pretty cool feeling when you, when you just do it like that. Don't, don't go out and buy a thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. That's not, that, that's not getting started in Bitcoin going out, buying, yeah, $3 of Bitcoin to send it to somebody. That's, that's how you get started in Bitcoin. Awesome. Well, I was going to ask you, yeah, what would be the first steps that you'd recommend somebody take after they become knowledgeable, like you said, and I also like that you mentioned the, the time 20 to 40 hours that if you're willing to invest 24 hours of, of time into learning how cryptocurrency works, you will be far and ahead of everyone, of, of the majority, of right? And, and really educated and making wiser choices. Yeah. And I think that's true for most things. I think uh, it's especially true with technologies, though. Technologies, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a new milieu. Yes, you're, you're, some of these technologies are kind of clunky at the beginning. Again, going back to the internet, internet analogy, I think the internet's such a good analogy for blockchain. I think 10 years from now, we're actually probably not going to talk about the blockchain and the internet as two separate things. Um, it's probably, I think, the, uh, the, the blockchain is essentially the completion of the internet. Um, that's a whole, a whole different thing. But um, yeah, you go back to the early internet and uh, finding, get, going to a URL was kind of a complicated thing. Google Chrome didn't finish 
typing in the website halfway through and, and, you know, get you off to facebook.com. You had to enter in the URL perfectly. There might've been 30 characters you had to enter and all this kind of stuff um, where now you can just kind of one click get on the internet. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of the phase we're in right now with blockchain and Bitcoin. It's, it's a still, it's a lot better than it was five years ago, especially 10 years ago. Um, but it's not where it's going to be, you know, three years from now, there's kind of this hyper, hyper acceptance of Bitcoin. That's also causing it to, to just run more smoothly, to be a lot easier to use. And, and the user experience is getting a lot better kind of every single year. Well, and I'm hoping my brother's going to jump on because he's been studying cryptocurrency for a while. And he was initially in that skeptic place. And then he told me the other, a little while ago that he's like, you know, now that I understand it, I kind of see the vision. I kind of get it that it's starting to make sense. And this is someone who's worked in Wall Street for his entire career, 30 years. Right. And so when it first came out, he was not telling any of his friends who everyone came to him saying, should I be buying Bitcoin? And he's like, it's going to crash. It's, you know, this is if you, you just know. And he's very cautious about the advice he gives to people because it bites him in the butt if, if that comes back later. So it's, I would say you're pretty bold to be making the, the step of even like sending people down this path, but you're ballsy in a lot of ways because. You know, right now, crypto's at 21K, right? It, today, like, I'm thinking now it's a good time to buy crypto. Can you get that 20 to 40 ed- hours of education quickly so that you don't miss the opportunity? Because um, maybe it is a good time. But if you don't understand it, like you said, that's probably a bad thing to just try to jump in it. And my understanding, too, is there's you can buy crypto in the wrong places because you're not really buying crypto. You're buying something that they buy crypto with so you're not you don't actually right. own crypto right and you have to be careful about that i think Robinhood is the one that is the most common where you think you're buying crypto but you're not buying crypto you're buying Robinhood. yeah yeah and Robinhood. i mean for a long time you couldn't even if you had bitcoin or you bought bitcoin through them you couldn't even move it off the exchange it was literally just to speculate on Robinhood on excuse me on their platform so you can only buy it to later sell it um, and that it's just so against the ethos of I'm glad that it, it, it spread more awareness and things like that, but it was getting people into the market with not fully understanding the tenets of, of Bitcoin. I think that's just such an important thing. And going back to what you said is, you know, we're in this market where it seems like a, maybe a prime buying opportunity, whether it's stocks or, or cryptos or something like that, the markets are certainly lower than where they were. We don't know whether they've bought, whether they've bottomed out or not, um, but what I would say is I would rather miss an opportunity that I don't understand um, than to get in on something that, you know, just I, sometimes you get we get things backwards. And so I would rather I'd be OK with missing out on opportunities if it's something I don't understand, because you know, then you're just speculating. There's lots of things you'll lose that, sleep um, at that point. Right. You'll lose. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And we and we tend to get into things in ways that we shouldn't have gotten into them. One of the things mm-hmm. I talked about in the again, I, I intentionally put the investing portion of, of the cryptocurrency thing towards the back of the book. It shouldn't be something you even consider until you've done a little bit of study. Um, but I, I talk about dollar cost averaging. Dollar cost averaging is this. It's what we do with our 401ks. It's, it's how we invest in most other things. We monthly or every paycheck, we put a little bit of money into the stock market. We just buy small amounts and over, you know, five years, 10 years, 40 years until retirement, we build wealth that way. For some, for some reason with cryptocurrencies, people think that they need to, as the kids used to say, YOLO into it. They need to just jump into it. I've got $5,000. I'm going to 
try and time the bottom of the market, or I'm just going to get in because I, I'm excited about it. And I do that. Well, guess what? If you did that a month ago, your 5,000 is going to be $3,000 right now. And like you said, you're going to be losing sleep. But if you take in that $5,000 and you bought $500 a month for the next 10 months, you're probably going to get a pretty nice average price. You're going to buy some high, you're going to buy some low, mm -hmm. but over the, the course of this, Bitcoin has these four-year cycles where anybody that's held Bitcoin so far, again, it's only been around for 13 years, not the, it's not the, <laughs> the track record of gold like 5,000 years, but over the last 13 years, nobody's lost money by holding Bitcoin for four years or more. And we can get into why it has these four-year cycles, um, but the long-term holders, have always done well. The short-term holders, there's lots of instances of them getting crushed. Impatience is a killer, right? You got to yeah. be patient. And, you know, I, I think that you want to invest money you can afford to lose. And so I've been taking like $250 a month and having it automatically transferred into Robinhood. Perfect. But guess what? It's just sitting in Robinhood because I don't know what to buy. Oh. If instead I took that $250 a month and put it into crypto, I just wouldn't even have to think about it. And based on what you're telling me, that's not a bad strategy because you are going to get some high and some low and $250 a month. I can afford to lose. Like yeah. it's not going to be a huge pain point, but $5,000 that would suck, right? If, if I put that in there and I would be losing sleep over it. So what you want to do is invest what you can afford to lose and, and deal with it. Um, and just know that, Hey, it could go up because if you started doing that 250 a month, five years ago, you know, yeah. you'd be a pretty happy camper right now. Right. All right. Bob has been patiently awaiting. He's, uh, he's well, not, I, I, I'm not a big advocate of cryptocurrency for a couple of reasons, but, but I, but I understand it to a large degree and, and I don't really understand the difference when you talk about it, as you just did, Brian, of, you know, from an investment standpoint, you know, what's the difference between rolling that into, you know, Apple shares or into Bitcoin? It, it seems to me to be the same type of process. The difference is, is that Bitcoin is creating a, a currency, a, a unregulated currency. And I guess I'd like to talk, I'd like you to talk, Brian, a little bit about, uh, you know, how that works and what about when people panic and what about, you know, the other considerations I've, I've read your book and, and I'm about halfway through it. And the thing that I see is that you are by clearly an evangelist for Bitcoin. I will give you that one hands down. Uh, but in all that time, you have to have seen some of the darker sides. I'd like to understand what the darker side of it looks like, because your book is almost 100% white. I mean, it's on almost a 100% positive spin on on Bitcoin, at least of the, of the front half of the book. I haven't read the back half yet, so I haven't got the, the investment part yet. <laughs> but He wants to see the yang in your yin. Yeah. No, I, I, I want to see, you know, what do you see on the downside because life is complicated nothing is 100 percent up and so what are what are the trade-offs that we're making here yeah and, and, and you're right spoiler alert the book's going to be pretty much totally white <laughs> um now and and that's intentional i kind of um, figured that out but <laughs> and that yeah it wasn't a spoiler alert for you but um and just yeah just to be transparent in this that the book is really a um it's a uh, it's some pushback it's a it's a rebuttal to mainstream narratives. I mean, when you click on headlines now, it, when, when the market's going up, mainstream news outlets will talk highly of Bitcoin because they get into this mania too. But a lot of times it, they come, it comes back to the mean and 
mainstream news really does a, a pretty thorough job of bashing cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. You know, I think there's a lot of cryptocurrencies that are we should bash. There's a lot that are actually are scams. And so um, I do talk about that somewhat in the investing section. I talk about avoiding scams and, and some of the darker sides of the investing uh, sides of things. Um, certainly in Bitcoin's past, there's been um, hacks of exchanges. So like there was this one called Mt. Gox early on. It was one of the only Bitcoin exchanges and it, it was hacked. Um, people don't know if it was actually the, the exchange uh, owner itself that he just stole it or if somebody else stole it. Um, and so there, there's some kind of darker things in the past, but that's the good thing is that those happened early on. So we've been able to kind of build and, and, and get past that. Um, I think what you said is the unregulated aspect of Bitcoin. I get where that makes some people nervous because uh, we like to make sure that, you know, our, our government at the end of the day uh, is is going to protect investors and things like that. Um, that is a, another component of Bitcoin where you kind of have to appreciate the Wild West aspect of it. Um, you're not going to get, at least right now, there's no regulation that protects investors. If you lost your, your wallet, um, the government's not, the FDIC is not going to come and insure your Bitcoin wallet. There's, a, there's risk that comes with sovereignty over your money. If you stored all your, your money in cash under your mattress, you don't have to worry about the bank you know, seizing your, your, your cash, or you don't have to worry about the bank getting robbed or, or the bank going insolvent, but you do have to worry about your house, your house catching on fire and your, your money burning up under your mattress. Um, that's the trade-off with Bitcoin of self-sovereignty is that if you're holding it yourself, uh, you have total control of your money. So if you wanted to support the Canadian trucker rally that happened earlier this year where they were protesting mandates and things like that, um, the power you had with Bitcoin is that even when, when GoFundMe shut down donations to the Canadian truckers, um, you would have still been able to, to, to donate to that cause, uh, that free speech movement. Um, if you, you know, after GoFundMe tried to shut it down, another company called Give, Send, Go popped up. And they, uh, they said, we're going to give the donations. And then the Canadian government actually seized or froze bank accounts that were receiving donations. If you had your own Bitcoin wallet, the, the trade-off that that's the power of that self-sovereignty would have been that you could have still donated to it. But at the same time, if you had a Bitcoin wallet, uh, you know, and you're custodying it yourself, you could lose your seed phrase. You could, uh, there could be user error and you could lose your funds by something that you did. So that's the yin to the yang. Um, with freedom comes kind of <laughs> the Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, that's, that, that holds true for Bitcoin. Okay. But based on what's going on very currently in, in the economy, which is runaway inflation, uh, can you talk about uh, how inflation impacts Bitcoin, I mean, other than the fact that it that it drives the, the Bitcoin price up or down, uh, how it interacts differently than regular currency. Yeah, and for, for those of your listeners that, that don't know, Bitcoin is, uh, it appeals to the gold bugs out there because gold for 5,000 years has been one of the world's most scarce assets. And so that's why it's been a reliable form of money. Bitcoin there's only 19 million Bitcoin in the world. There's only going to ever be 21 million. So there's a limited hard supply. So you could actually argue 
that it's more scarce or it's more gold than gold in that regard. Because gold, we don't actually know how much is in the ground. It could be mined. With Bitcoin, we know exactly how much is going to exist at any time. Well, you could pick a time, a date on the calendar 10 years from now, and we could go and look on the, you know, kind of do the math and, and figure out, okay, exactly how much Bitcoin is going to be out there. So there's a very... Um, specific supply with Bitcoin, um, which is kind of the antithesis to central banking. With central banking, we can look at things. Um, there's a metric called the M2 money supply, which will show you how many dollars are in existence. Um, there's, there's varying reports as far as how many dollars have been printed in the last two years. Um, some reports say the official report from the M2 money supply is that it was 40% of all dollars ever. So in the last 200 plus years of the United States, 40% of all the dollars ever were created in the last two years. That's pretty staggering. There's some reports that say it's as high as 80%. And now maybe the 80% is high. And I, I think that probably is, but this just goes to show that we actually don't know this. The central banking system is totally opaque. We don't know how much was printed. We don't know how much was given to big banks or, or bureaucrats or anything like that. There's, there's just not a way of checking it. Bitcoin is the most distributed ledger. It literally gets audited every 10 minutes by everyone in the world that's on the Bitcoin network. So it's literally audited the most you could possibly check something where the Federal Reserve has been in existence since 1913. It's written into the law that it's supposed to be audited periodically. Since 1913, it's not been audited one time. It's a totally opaque system. And so we don't know how much it's created. So if you want transparency, and, and that, this is kind of where a lot of the, the, the narrative battling that, that I've done with the book versus what the press has put out there, it, it, people paint Bitcoin as kind of this dark web thing where you can go and buy drugs online and stuff like that as though it's some sort of nefarious thing. It's totally transparent. It's the opposite of our central banking system. So to your point about, the, about inflation, um, I've been riding the inflation train. I was I was pitching to entities that I was uh, that I was consulting for in the years leading up to COVID. So starting, I think 2017 was the first time I did a, a presentation on how inflation is going to be a really big deal in the next couple of years. Inflation didn't become a big deal because of COVID. That writing was on the wall. And we that's a whole. I can we can go into that. But there was a lot of signs indicating that we, we were going to be here with inflation many years before COVID. Um, and so. I thought Bitcoin back then was a solution to that. And then one of the counter arguments that you'll hear somebody say is, hey, look at inflation's at eight and a half percent right now. Bitcoin just tanked 40 percent. <laughs> Bitcoin's the worst inflation hedge ever. And what I would say to that is like, well, it sounds compelling on its face. But if you think about it, smart money didn't buy Bitcoin last month or the month before when the CPI data came out and said that we're at eight and a half percent inflation. The people that were buying Bitcoin then or at 69,000 at Bitcoin's highest price, it's 21,000 today. Um, those people were speculators. Speculators, they weren't buying it as an inflation hedge. The people that were buying Bitcoin as an inflation hedge was the smart money in March of 2020 or in April of 2020 when they saw a pandemic happening and they saw the money printers going, <laughs> as the kids say, money printer go burr. It just prints and we don't know how much is printing. Smart money was buying it then as a hedge. We always, people that buy something as a hedge buy it ahead of time. And those people bought Bitcoin at $3,500. So it crashed to 21,000, but those people are still up six or 700% as an inflation hedge. So to that point, I would say it, it does still act as an inflation hedge because it's scarce versus something that is unlimited. Excellent. I mean, I think one of the arguments there with the M2 supply is, is that the rumor that people think that money is printed anymore. 
I mean, most of this is not, most of the money that's actually in circulation is nowhere near the amount of money that's in the economy. Uh, and so the government can create money by bank to bank transfers <laughs> and they don't have to print anything. Yep. Uh, so, so it's, you know, that's, that's kind of an interesting twist to it, but, it, but I, I think back to the, to the Bitcoin thing is that during the time that I, I'm, I'm a believer that inflation is a derivative of how much money got pumped into the economy because it's how much money divided by the value in the, in the economy. And, and the kicker here is that during the time that this was building up where Congress was throwing money out into the economy in buckets, literally, uh, and, and a key driving force to inflation is what they did with that. I mean, I, I think that's pretty easy for most people to accept. But at the same time, crypto put in $4 trillion to the $2.5 trillion that Congress pumped out. So crypto actually put more into the economy for less value in that process. So I would say that it, it's a contributing factor to inflation, hmm. not a hedge to it. That's, that's interesting. So I, I, I want to just make a distinction between Bitcoin and the crypto industry. The crypto industry, um, there's no scarcity to cryptocurrencies. Um, Bitcoin, when I, when I say cryptocurrencies, I'm putting that in a different basket. There's Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies can be replicated endlessly. Um, and so that's, I think, specifically what you're talking to. I'm 100% on board with you there, Bob. I think that there's a lot of fluff. There's a lot of speculation. And there's a lot of things that are, are, you're right, they're exacerbating inflation. Um, I don't think Bitcoin is, is, that, is the culprit in that scenario um, because it's, there's not more of it being created. A lot of the wealth that is created, the wealth that is being created in cryptocurrency are things that if I opened up a, a, new, a new cryptocurrency tomorrow and I put a 1 billion coins in circulation, all I have to do is sell 100 of those coins at $10 a piece. So I have a, a 1 billion coins. I sold a few of them for, to say, $10. So now my market cap is $10 billion. I only sold a few coins, but on paper, it looks like there's $10 billion now in wealth that was created because there's a market value assessed to the, the value of an individual coin and somebody is holding out all the outstanding coins. Projects are doing that. This is the scammy side. So going back to your point about the dark side of cryptocurrencies, there, there are things in the cryptocurrency industry that are negative, that are, that are being a net, a net negative for society. And I, I'm 100% on board with you there. I think that's one of the, the chief ideals of Bitcoin is to preserve scarcity. And in the Bitcoin community, if you go on, I'm not a big Bitcoin maximalist. I, I'm a Bitcoin. Uh, it's it's a pr the primary coin, I think, in my uh, in my estimation. If you go on Twitter and, and look in the Bitcoin community, they do not like, they call them SHIT coiners. They, uh, <laughs> they don't like anything that's not Bitcoin because of this exact point. They think it takes away from the, the, the tenants of Bitcoin. The legitimacy. Yeah. And, and what I would say is, is why those Bitcoin is a large percentage of that market. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's usually somewhere between 40 and 60% of the market. It, it, it is a, a huge component, but it, it, it's fluctuations don't, it, it doesn't vary quite as much as the rest of the market. The rest of the market, when the, when we're in a bull market, the rest of the market will go up more than Bitcoin. When it's a bear market, it'll go down more than Bitcoin. Bitcoin's as speculative, not as speculative, as, as uh, volatile as Bitcoin is, it's the least volatile in the cryptocurrencies. Well, it's the bellwether of that industry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think that, that the question I have in my head when I look at, at cryptocurrencies and 
Bitcoin, I think, is the leading, it's the 800 pound gorilla in the room. Let's put it like that. It, it's certainly the bulk of it. But, you know, in the last six months, Bitcoin has gone uh, down by 55%. Uh, now, where it's going to bounce off to and where it's going to go to, who knows? But some, some cryptocurrencies have gone to zero. Uh, but again, you know, those are bad players in a good market type of thing is the argument that, that you play with that. So, but I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, where that dark side is, how this becomes controllable. I mean, at what point uh, is there a process that allows the government to bring inflation under control the same way it does with regular currency with an unregulated wild, wild west currency like Bitcoin? Yeah, and it's, it's funny. I think we have to go to history for the answer to that. Um, I think that the, 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 the pitch of Bitcoin and the scarcity argument is becoming more and more relevant to people every day as we live in a, an inflationary environment. Uh, one of the things that I talk about in the book is, uh, is a case study. Most people are familiar. They learned, we learned about it in high school history of Weimar Germany after World War I and the hyperinflation. That's probably one of the most famous hyperinflationary events in history. And uh, what happened after World War One, and I'm sure you know this, Bob, but just for the audience, uh, after World War One, there was massive, um, you know, just a massive debt that that Germany, Weimar Germany, had to pay, and there was no way for them to do it. They had war reparations, they had their war debts themselves, and all sorts of things. So um, they, from I think it was 19, I think 1919 to 1921 or 1922, it was a two or three year period. It went from a pretty stable currency to total hyperinflation. Their debt at the end of World War I was, uh, I believe it was 60 billion, uh, 60 billion marks. Uh, three years later, by the time the hyperinflation was done, their smallest unit, their smallest, like where we have a $1 bill, their smallest bill was a 1 trillion mark unit. And so that means that they were 60 billion in debt, but then now their dollar bill is 1 trillion, literally Imagine if our $30 trillion debt right now got so hyperinflated away because it's fixed debt. This is why governments like inflation. They have fixed debt. And so as the currency devalues, their debt actually becomes, in real terms, becomes less expensive. And so Germany, Weimar Germany was able to pay off their debt in their marks with the equivalent of 60 cents by the end of it. Um, that's, that's really powerful. The way that they fix it. So once they paid off their debt, that took care of one problem, but now you know, by the time you start dinner, dinner's one price. And by the end of dinner, you have a different price. You can't run society that way. So they needed to fix their hyperinflation. The way they fixed their hyperinflation, they went from having the mark, the German mark, and then they brought it a side currency. They said, okay, our national currency is still the mark, but we have now the Renton mark. And what the Renton mark is, there's only, I don't remember what the supply was, but they had a certain supply and they promised their citizens that they wouldn't print any more than let's just say call it a hundred billion. We won't print any more than a hundred billion of the Renton mark. So you have this currency over here that's inflating, but this one right over here is stable. And I think that the um, it was a one trillion to one dollar uh, pig ratio. And so you can transact in the old currency, you can transact in the new currency. People just naturally went over to the other currency. It stabilized their their economy, and that's how they brought the the hyperinflation back under control. Because they had a, and this is one of the few times that a, a government fiat currency 
they kept to that promise for for decades. I don't I think it was decades that they didn't print more of it. They had a healthy system for quite a while. I think Bitcoin can actually be the solution. And this is why I think that I, one of the chapters or one of the sections of the chapters, I, I call it the unbloody revolution. I think that at some point, Bitcoin will seem like a like a life preserver, not just as citizens and individuals in hyperinflationary times, but I think governments will use it as a way to stabilize their currencies and to prevent runaway inflation, hyperinflation. We have high inflation. Hyperinflation, the definition of hyperinflation is 50% month over month inflation. That's astronomical. We don't, eight and a half percent, that's just, that's high inflation. 15% inflation, that's high inflation. Hyperinflation is 50% month over month. So to say all that, I think Bitcoin will actually seem 10 years from now, 12 years from now, 15 years from now, I don't know the time. Um, I think Bitcoin will be seen as a way to preserve national currencies to create stability. Well, and isn't El Salvador had hyperinflation, and so they're looking at, you know, the nationalized on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they 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 did that. So they had runaway inflation years ago. They went over to the U.S. dollar. Um, unfortunately, they don't like it. I mean, imagine if you're El Salvador, you're a sovereign nation, but you're beholden to somebody else's economic policies, especially when it's another centralized thing. So they were the first com- uh, country ever to adopt Bitcoin as a national currency. So they have two national currencies. They have the US dollar and they have Bitcoin. Um, and they're, they have all, all sorts of uh, things that they're doing with that right now. But one of the coolest things is they have a lot of expatriates, a lot of people that work, uh, work in the United States and send money back to El Salvador. I think their GDP in El Salvador, um, I think it's something like, it's only like $40 billion is the total economic output of El Salvador. Last year, it's estimated that they saved between $300 million and $400 million in, in wire transfer fees because they use Bitcoin Lightning to send money home. So they saved like one or 2% of their national GDP just in wire transfer fees. So you imagine when somebody's sending $100 home and $25 is being taken out and you know $25 might be a month's rent in El Salvador, um, this is life-changing stuff. So mm-hmm. where in the West, this is probably less profound to us right now, we're starting to taste inflation, but in other countries, this is a lifesaver. It's it's a really big deal in some of these developing nations. Amazing. All right, we got about five minutes. I'm going a little over than I had planned. Bob, do you have any uh, pressing questions? Bob muted himself. No, I do not. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but yes, I did. He, he. We could talk on this topic for hours, but it is Friday afternoon. And uh, we all have the weekend ahead. And Brian's got another interview coming up. Um, Maybe, Brian, just closing kind of what you want to have people take away from your book, from this podcast, and maybe, again, the call to action, which I think we know, but might as well overstate it. Yeah. And so, like I said a couple of times, I think you before you go on Coinbase and buy $100 worth of Bitcoin, try to look at this as a technology. The Internet... It's not, you know, we don't talk about the internet like it was a company, um, but for some reason we talk about Bitcoin as though it's a company. Like, oh, why won't Bitcoin be like MySpace and be usurped by Facebook? I think it's important to look at Bitcoin as a protocol. And, and what I mean by that, and I'll try to be as brief as possible. Sorry, I'm so long-winded. Um, in the early days of the internet, like pre-internet, but when we had intranets on college campuses, let's call it, you know, the 1970s, you have USC and UCLA. They're in the same town and they both have their own intranet. They both have emails on campus, but 
You can only send a USC email on USC's campus and a UCLA email on UCLA's campus. You can't send one from one to the other. There's no interoperability. But when when the email uh, when when the internet protocols came along, the email protocols and HTTP and IT, you know, all those all those letters, right? They allowed these these college campuses to communicate all over the country. Now we had the World Wide Web. The protocol changed the world. It absolutely changed the world. That's what Bitcoin is. It's a payments protocol. So right now, you can't send a PayPal payment to Venmo. And I talk about this in the book. They're the same company. They're owned by the same company. They're a sister company. But you can't send a payment from one to the other. But any company that plugs into the Bitcoin protocol, they now speak a common language. So you could actually PayPal $5 to your friend on Venmo, and then they could send it to the cash app, then they could send it to Twitter, and then they can send you that payment to email and Facebook, you can send it through anywhere because there's a common programming language. So when we start to look at Bitcoin like that, I think it becomes a lot more interesting rather than I say, hey, buy $100 worth of Bitcoin, because it might be $200 in a month from now. That's fun if that's the way it plays out. But let's look at look at it as a technology first and then an investment second. I love it. That's a new take. And like I said, I promised in the in this podcast today, actually I didn't state it up front, but I guarantee you will be inspired to take a closer look, look at cryptocurrency than you probably were previously. So this has been great, Brian. We really appreciate you taking time with Tech Reads. This is Soft Tech's podcast to our community and beyond. And if you guys want to learn, if anyone wants to learn more about SoftTech, it's in the bumper, closing bumper, but it's softe.org. And Brian, how do people find out more about you and your book? Thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys. Bob, I appreciate the questions. Brian, thank you so much. Um, yeah, so on Twitter, it's Brian V. Mint. And then my Instagram is Brian.Dement. Um, I'm very responsive on there. I love to interact. If you have if you have questions, uh, skeptical questions of Bitcoin, I like those even better. Those are always more fun. Um, but my book, you can get on, get it on Amazon. Um, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're an avid reader, I would love your feedback. Reviews on Amazon are always appreciated. It's the first book that I know of um, that has a Bitcoin wallet hidden inside of it. So there's a, it's 3.1 million pieces of Bitcoin. So not whole Bitcoin, but there's these pieces of Bitcoin called Satoshi's. There's 3.1 million of them hidden in the book. If you find it, there's a there's a page that explains how to do it. But you can actually take my Bitcoin and uh, you know just by reading the book. That's awesome. And yes, that's a carrot. So it's Bitcoin evangelism, and uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can also get his website. It's freshly min minted books. Is that right? Yes. Com? Freshlymintedbooks.com. There we go. All right, you guys. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend, and thanks again. Thank you for listening to Tech Reads, sponsored by SoftTech. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. If you have comments, questions, or want to suggest an author for a future episode, visit SoftTech at softec.org and click on the Tech Reads link.